if you have a story you would like to hear featured on this podcast, please go to AsTheRavenDreams.com and click the button to submit your story. Also, if the platform you're listening on has the option to rate this podcast, please consider doing so. And thank you. This was something that happened to me and my friends back around 2011. I don't want to give away too much about where I live, because this event kind of left me a bit paranoid. So all I will say is that it was not in the US. I grew up in a pretty small town, and it wasn't the best one in our city either. It had a healthy population of addicts and street workers. It wasn't uncommon to see someone sleeping next to a building, or people making blatantly obvious deals right in front of you. You just looked the other way, and tried to be as non-existent as possible. This of course was taught by my parents, along the idea of it's not polite to stare, and as I got older, I understood that mentality too. When I moved out, I stayed close to home maybe 20 to 30 minutes from my old neighborhood, but it was never forgotten. When my dad passed, my mom moved in with my aunt, her sister, because she couldn't bear to live in an empty home anymore. They lived close to the same neighborhood, so when I went to visit them, I would drive by our old house and reminisce about the good memories there. But when I'm not being sappy, my friends and I do like to enjoy each other's company, typically outdoors and typically with drinks in hand. This event happened on one of those nights. It was me and two of my mates hanging out at an old decrepit park. Kids haven't visited here in many years, being it was falling apart, and a new and updated one was constructed nearby. As long as we didn't make a scene, People typically left us alone, too. After talking a bit, we got on the topic of an abandoned and run-down building, and Liam mentioned a house nearby. After talking more about it and the liquid courage fueling us, we all wanted to check it out. All of us came from similar backgrounds, and while I wouldn't call us thieves, we would help ourselves to some things found in long-abandoned places typically to sell and get ourselves a bit of extra cash. We never directly stole from people or broke into obviously used and inhabited homes. We left our car at the park and walked to the house, since it was only about a kilometer away. As we approached it, you could definitely tell the place had been left for nature to take over. The grass was overgrown, the bricked path to the door was cracking and uneven, the weeds were climbing the walls of the house, and all the windows were covered by boards. As we stood near the entrance, trying to get through the gate, I started getting that eerie feeling that something bad was about to happen. Being who I am, though, I wasn't about to back out and told myself that it was just the booze making me feel ill, and I let it go. I helped Liam break the latch and we walked towards the door. The doorknob itself was beyond being called a doorknob, so with just a nudge on the door, we walked in. 
stepping into the house felt like stepping into a time capsule. It was as if the owner left the place in a rush, but expected to return shortly after. There was a cup sitting on the coffee table with something dried at the bottom of it. A small plate sat next to it with what looked like a dried and shriveled up piece of food on it. There were still a few dishes in the sink, and a jacket haphazardly thrown on the back of a chair. Everything was then covered in a thick layer of dust. Even the cobwebs were covered in dust. We explored room after room, finding remnants of a life that had once thrived within those walls. But while the floral wallpaper that was now peeling from the walls made it look like a pleasant family home, one thing I did notice was the complete lack of photos anywhere. None on the walls, none on the tables or shelves. There weren't even empty places where they could have been. Right as we thought we had seen everything, we stopped in the family room to discuss what we wanted to do next, when I noticed Jack turn his attention to the wall that he'd been leaning on. He had now shifted his stance and was running his hand along said wall. Liam and I stopped talking and were now watching him, waiting for him to explain himself. Once he realized, he could explain how there was a slight give in the wall and how he could feel a small dip in it. We watched as he was able to trace a square along the wall and turned to us to ask what we wanted to do. Jack was adamant that there had to be a good reason to cover that wall, as a normal hole would just have been patched. Since it was a large square, he felt like it was hiding something. Liam was a little braver than the rest of us, so he approached the wall as if he was going to check it out, and instead threw his shoulder into it immediately caving in the wall. After we recovered from shock and laughed, we cleared the area a bit, and we looked in. I honestly expected it just to be a larger hole that was just made worse, but that was not the case. Nope. We couldn't just end it there with a weird house and nothing of interest. The hole that we had just recreated seemed to be a crawl space of some sort, that went down into a small tunnel. And, of course... My friends are more than willing to crawl through that space. Jack went first, and then Liam motioned me to go, but I was nervous and something told me not to. After a shove, Liam went in, leaving me alone. I could hear them talking as I put my head in, and they mentioned that there was a whole room on the other side. I paced there, annoyed that they had left me, but I now wanted to join them not wanting to be left alone, so I reluctantly crawled through. And, once again, I expected to see some kind of storage room, but this was set up like an entire bedroom. The first thing I looked at was the bed. It was a plain twin mattress with an old-looking quilt thrown on top of it. No pillow. Liam pulled back the quilt, and we were met with a very large, dark brown stain on the mattress. I immediately backed away and looked around the room. There had to be cameras and someone had to be messing with us at this point, but there was nothing on the walls. Just a single standing lamp that Jack tried, and it actually turned on. I was a little relieved to have light, but 
Then the unsettling feeling overpowered me. Knowing that the power was still on and working in this, what appeared to be an abandoned place. I knew my mates weren't in any rush to leave, so I turned to look over the desk, which was the only other thing in that room. On the desk, there were scattered papers, most of them being newspaper clippings, and the clippings were all about the same thing. They were all about a string of unsolved killings from my old town and the next one over. It was something that I tried to forget about as a kid, and after the cases went cold and I moved away, I never thought about it again. My hometown had become the hunting ground for a serial killer. As a kid, I remember the fear that gripped our town during that time. They always targeted the same people. It was those that were down on their luck, the homeless, and the addicts. I just remember hearing the stories on the news or when adults talked about them. I didn't understand the whole MO or target thing as I was still a child at the time, but what I did understand was that there was someone around that was hurting people, and it made me fear that the same thing could happen to me. Even to this day, I know that I didn't fit the demographic, but the fear at the time was real, and seeing those clippings brought it all back. As I reread those articles and tried to make out the scribbled writing along the sides, I noticed Jack was trying to pry open the bottom drawer. It had a lock on it, but there was no key nearby or in any of the other drawers. So, Liam did what he knew best and brute-forced it, managing to break the lock and part of the wood off as he pulled on it. It was just another moment that I wished we would have stopped and just left. In the drawer was a bunch of random but creepy items. There was a hairbrush full of hair, torn pieces of cloth, tarnished jewelry, and even a few pictures of random people. No one was repeated in those photos. It could have been anything, sure, but the randomness of the items definitely had trophy feels to it, and that's whenever I checked out of there, and I demanded to my friends that we leave. Jack seemed a little weirded out, but Liam thought it was all funny. Not having any other way to leave, I crawled back through the tunnel and left the house. I paced in front of it until Jack and Liam walked out. We all joked about it, and Liam was adamant that someone was just screwing around for laughs, but the fact that the wall had been closed off seemed like someone was wanting to hide a dark secret. We dropped it shortly after, walking back to the park and talking about anything and everything. But after going back home, I couldn't forget about that room. I looked up the case, and after seeing that it was still cold, I decided to make an anonymous tip. I called them, and I explained how I happened across a home and what I'd found. I explained that I didn't take anything but how it seemed like it could be relevant. They didn't seem too interested until I mentioned the drawer. They said that they would look into it, and that was the only time that I talked to anyone about it. I still look up the case, and I can't find anything about a new lead or a suspect being found so I don't know if I was helpful or not. 
but the fear that I felt being in that room, knowing that a potential killer or someone obsessed with them could have been in that same room, still creeps me out to this day. Hi Raven, big fan here. I've been listening to all of your videos for a while now, and I thought that I should share a very scary story that happened to me. What happened to me didn't freak me out as much at the time, but over time, the more I thought about it, and what almost happened to me, the more terrified I got. I think it's because my brain blocked what happened, and that it was so scary that I felt numb for a while. My brain has always tended to be good at blocking out traumatic events. This is kind of a long story, so I apologize. This happened back in the fall of 2017. I was almost 22 at the time, and my friends and I were first semester seniors in college. My super close group of friends consisted of five of us, two guys and three girls, me being one of the three girls. I'm going to change all of our names, including my own, for privacy. Our group consisted of myself, girl one, Daniela, girl two, Nicole, girl three, Marie, Guy 1, Jack, and Guy 2, Nolan. I'm almost 28 now, and I do not drink anymore, but as you know, a solid number of college kids tend to go out and get a bit drunk sometimes. Perhaps a bit too often. My friends and I, on the weekends, were some of those back in the day. It was Jack's 22nd birthday, and he was throwing a birthday celebration dinner. And then, after the dinner, the plan was to go to an area of the city that had a strip of bars and nightclubs. It wasn't the first time that we'd been there, and I didn't like to go often because it was at times a questionable area, but alas, I wanted to be there for my friend's birthday. So, after our delicious dinner, I tagged along and we went to the party strip. We went to about four bars and nightclubs, until I realized I had regrettably gotten a bit too drunk. Nicole had as well. I asked Nicole if she wanted to go Uber with me home, but Nicole was the kind of girl who would keep going, no matter how drunk she got. I, on the other hand, always chose to stop when I hit a certain point. Even when really drunk though, I always still remembered everything and I never drank myself into a blackout. Marie, who is now my ex-best friend for many reasons, wanted to stay and had no thought in how I would get home. And Nicole, who I'm still close with to this day, considered going with me. But then Jack and Nolan stepped in, asking me if I wanted them to take me home. And that's when I said, No, it's fine. I'm not going to make you stop celebrating your birthday early just because I drank too much and don't feel well. They insisted again, and I said, No, really, it's fine. Don't worry about it. I'll get home safely. I really didn't want to be the reason that Jack left his celebration night early, or anyone there for that matter. 
They offered to walk me out and wait with me for my Uber to arrive, and I at least agreed on that. I told Nicole that she should just stay as well, because she was having fun, and I didn't want to make her go home early with me either. It was midnight at this point, and I was just super tired on top of it, and I kind of just wanted to hop into bed. Looking back, firmly insisting that they should stay was one of the dumbest decisions I've ever made, especially since they were only trying to keep me safe. On the app, it said that my car was a black Toyota Corolla and that my driver's name was Michael. A few minutes later, the app said the car was on our block arriving and a black Toyota Corolla pulled up. I said, Michael, Uber for Daniela? And he said, yes. My friends then hugged me goodbye and told me to be safe and to please text them when I got home. I told them, I will have a fun rest of your night. He also looked like the guy in the picture, so I wasn't suspicious of anything. Back in the day, I would sometimes feel very carsick after drinking and I would ask the driver if I could sit in the front. So, I asked him, and he said, that's totally fine. By the way, I haven't done this in years. I think at such a young age, we all just make decisions that we don't think about too much, quite often, and fail to realize how dumb these decisions were later on. Sitting shotgun in a passenger's car can be so dangerous. But, I was young and dumb, so please don't judge me. After I hopped in, we made a right turn and drove a few blocks. On the route home, there's a darker area of little fields of grass, and some houses that you pass before going under a bridge and getting onto the highway. Just as we were maybe 400 feet from the bridge in the dark area near the houses, he said, Wait, may I have your address? I was slightly confused, but I gave it to him assuming the app messed it up or was having some sort of glitch or something, so I brushed it off. Then, this is when I saw the guy entering my address into Google Maps. This is when I began to get a little suspicious. I looked directly at him and said, The Uber app should automatically have my address and directions. Why are you using Google Maps? He stayed silent for a few seconds before mumbling, This is easier. This is when full suspicion kicked in. I got louder and more demanding, saying, Pull up the Uber app. He looked at me as if he was taken aback. This is when my Uber driver, Michael, messaged me, asking me where I was standing, so that he could pick me up. My blood ran cold. I asked, You aren't actually an Uber driver, are you? He looked at me quietly and said, No, with a weird smirk on his face. Now, I knew that I was likely in some serious danger. As someone who is the opposite of passive, and will kick someone's arse if I have to for my safety, I said, If you don't let me out of this car, I will not only punch you in the face but I will pepper spray you and continue to tase you as your nose bleeds, and I'll call the police as you whimper in pain, feeling real freaking sorry. 
I also have a pocket knife in case of idiots like you, and I won't be scared to use it on you after I use the rest of my things on you either. To be honest, all I had on me was my fist ready to punch, but he didn't know this. I had to be intimidating, and make it seem like I had on me some things that could really hurt him. He backed slightly away from me with his back towards his left corner of his seat. I then demanded, Stop this car now, and let me the hell out. He looked really shocked, and he pulled the car to a halt. I then asked, Why the hell did you even pick me up? He stayed silent, looking really shocked. One, as if he didn't expect me to figure out this soon and two, that I would threaten him this badly, and be more than happy to fight back. He gave a look that kind of said, this one isn't worth it. I got out of the car, slammed the door, and I ran as fast as I could towards the bar again, even though they were several blocks away. I made it about two blocks before this guy finally put his car in drive and sped away really fast. I was still mortified, and still being in a super dark area near the houses was a huge insult to injury. Luckily, this guy was nowhere in sight. Why the two cars were the exact same? I guess just horrible luck and a horrible coincidence. I immediately called the real Michael after I had received his message, and told him about what had happened nearly in tears, explaining that that was why I was in a different location now. The real Michael was such a kind and caring godsend. He said, Oh, no, I'm so sorry that just happened to you. He told me to stay calm, to stay on the phone with him, and to give him the description of my exact location and what I was wearing so that he could more easily spot me, and said that he would be there to pick me up as quick as possible. About three minutes later, as I'm standing in the dark shaking out of adrenaline, I see a black Toyota Corolla speeding towards me, as Michael said on the phone, I spotted you. I'm here. I cannot describe the amount of relief that I felt in that moment. I hopped into Michael's car, and he said that what just happened was so scary, and that I needed to be more careful out there. I told him that the guy in the car fit his exact same description, and had the same car, and that when I asked him if it was an Uber for Daniela, he said yes, and that I was always super careful and expressed that there was no way I could have known. Michael was really shocked to hear of this coincidence, but was super concerned and caring. He asked me if I needed him to take me to the police station, and said that if I needed him to, that he would turn his app off after getting there and that I wouldn't have to worry about any charges for the ride home. I said I was super thankful, but that I would just call the non-emergency line and file a police report when I got home, and that I just wanted to get home. He understood, and said that he had two daughters himself, and knowing that I was someone's daughter, it hid an extra protective, worried nerve in him. I immediately knew that he was a safe person to ride home with, even before I got into his car with how he spoke on the phone. He helped me calm down, and when he got me home, he waited until I entered my apartment building, 
and once I finally got inside my apartment, I gave him one hell of a tip for saving me from this situation. Because between the time the guy sped away and Michael picked me up, it had only been a few minutes. Who's to say that guy wasn't going to turn back around? After I got home, I called the non-emergency line and filed a police report, but there was only so much they could do, since all I could give was the guy's car model and what he looked like, and where he picked me up. I was in too much of a fight-or-flight mode when it all happened to look at the license plate or take any pictures. I wish that I had, but my only focus was to get out of that car and get away from whoever that man was as fast as possible. I told my friends what happened the next day, and they said that they were not letting me go home alone ever again, no matter the circumstances, and I appreciated them for that. To this day, I 100% believe that had I not caught on before the other car got onto the highway with me in it, that I would have been kidnapped or trafficked. I do not believe that guy had any intention of actually bringing me home that night. I believe he was putting my address in to trick me into thinking he was going to drive me home, and that he was going to end up driving me to a different place. And I don't want to ever find out what that place could have been. I believe that he was some part of a ring of men that drove around waiting for young, drunk, vulnerable girls to mistaken them for an Uber and hop into their car. I'm forever thankful for Michael, because quite a few Uber drivers will cancel the ride after 5-10 to 10 minutes of waiting, but Michael, he continued to circle around looking for me until he finally called me. I am forever grateful that I made it out of that situation. Hello, Raven. This is now the second story that I've submitted. I really love your videos, and I listen to them while I sew on hot summer nights that make you turn and roll in bed. This happened back when I was 15. As it is beginning to be a couple of years now, I checked with my friends to fill in the details that I forgot. At the time, I wanted to go explore abandoned places, and some of my friends were willing to go with me, some even excited. I found a post on a forum mentioning an abandoned house in my city, with indications on how to get there. Bingo. I went there with L, also 15, and E and A, both 16. A was the only boy that was with us. We followed the post's indications. The first step was to go to the cemetery. It was an early September in the afternoon, so it was warm, and all we could hear was the cicadas singing. I live in a small, by American standards at least, city in southern France one that regularly has floods, some having killed over a dozen of people. The authorities take this risk very seriously, so they built tunnels under the city in order to make the floodwaters go there instead of into the streets, which can't prevent the next flood, but at least lower its intensity. The tunnel starts right next to the cemetery, 
Its beginnings are littered with empty snack packaging, which meant that part of the tunnel, first few meters, that are lit up by the outside lights, are visited by fellow teens. However, the tunnel becomes dark really quickly. And by dark, I mean so inky that your phone flashlight doesn't light up anything but the person in front of you. I looked it up on the City Hall's website, and this part of the tunnel is 5 by 3 meters, or about 16 by 10 feet large, as it is a half circle in shape. I remember the echo being crazy, and we were playing around with it at first, and I took some videos. They must be on a memory card buried somewhere in my parents' house. I remember the ambience of that tunnel, despite it not being remarkably cramped, as quite claustrophobic, since we didn't hear the cicadas, only the muffled sounds of cars above us from time to time. In the pitch-black part of the tunnel, I remember that we saw needles, little plastic bags, etc. When we shined our phone lights on the ground, we were afraid to meet someone in the tunnel on our way, and so we kept watching out and making sure we didn't hear any strange sounds. The second step to finding the abandoned house was to go through a small hole atop the tunnel, on the side. There were a few along the way, and none seemed to lead to a house, so we continued to walk. We went so far that we eventually arrived at the end of this portion of the tunnel, which is, apparently, according to the city hall, roughly 1.5 kilometers long, or about a mile, but we seemed to have spent so much more time in it. This isn't a large distance, and yet I remember us walking for at least 45 minutes. We walked back and I realized where the hole was and pointed it out to my friends. A kneeled down and helped me get up to the hole first, as I was the lightest. The hole must have been about 1.6 meters, or 5 foot 2 inches away from the ground, comparative to my height. Everyone then threw me their bags, and A helped the others similarly as I pulled them up by grabbing their arms, until we finally got A to us. That's when we realized that something was wrong. It was infested with mosquitoes, and I got at least a dozen of bites from this incident. The end of the tiny plot of land had a half-destroyed stone wall, which A promptly tried to climb. I shouted that if he were to break his leg, that we would just leave without him, which made him get down. The plot of land was really tiny, and there was no house. It was surrounded by wire fence on all sides, but the wall, and facing said wall, was the very top of the tunnel exposed and to our horror, on the left, a small house that seemed inhabited. We were making a lot of sounds, as a bunch of teens would, and after a couple of minutes of trying to see behind the stone wall, still hoping for an abandoned house, an old woman opened up one of the inhabited house windows, yelling something along the lines of, Get off my property! I'm calling the cops! If you've never been in a similar situation as a dumb teen, 
I don't think you can quite grasp the short-circuiting happening in your brain when you hear those words. Common sense would have wanted us to apologize, and say that we were leaving, then immediately do so. Instead, we were so scared by the thought of having the cops called on us, that we bolted out of the plot of land and jumped straight into the tunnel. And yes, I did hurt my ankle whilst doing so. The tunnel cut through numerous roads, and the only muffled sounds that our ears could detect were cars passing above us, and a couple of times the sound of police sirens. This happened three or four times, and it was certainly unrelated to our failed attempt at urban exploration, but every time we would turn our flashlights to each other, looking scared out of our minds. I was wondering what I would say to my parents if we ever got arrested, coming from a tunnel littered with needles after trespassing on someone's house, especially since we all told our parents we went to the city center, and instead we took a bus to the cemetery. Anyway, we got out of the tunnel walking as fast as we could without making too much sound, and went into the cemetery, which had trees everywhere wanting to hide probably all the while looking like we saw a real ghost. <laughs> no cops were called, and I know why the house wasn't abandoned. The forum post was five years old at that point. Anyway, this makes for a great story to tell these days, since I believe it to be highly comical. I've only kept in touch with Elle, and we sometimes bring up the time that we tried to go ghost hunting, and we have a good laugh about it. I hope this story makes it into one of your videos, despite nothing having really happened, except getting thrown out at a random lady's house. And a tip for urban explorer wannabes, check thoroughly that the place you're going to be exploring is really abandoned beforehand. Hey guys, I'm a longtime listener, and I finally came around to having time to send my story to you. I wanted to share this to help out younger generations to realize that things are not always as innocent as they seem. Also, to be more aware of authoritative figures that may have more nefarious means than our young child naivety may or may not recognize. I truly hope that this helps someone, just as your podcast has helped me. So, thank you for that. Anyways, here goes. I'm a female, born and raised in New Jersey, who grew up in the 90s. I was born in 88. And this story happened when I was 11 years old, and in 7th grade. I was young for my class and I actually started high school when I was 13. One weekend night, I was having a sleepover at my house with three of my friends. Everyone got dropped off at my house, and then we decided how much fun it would be to go to the new Walmart that was just built a town over from us. You know, because Walmart is so cool and all. <laughs> this was different, because we were all used to stores being all together in a mall indoors, in this new Walmart was a strip mall, having some other stores down the length of the newly built property. 
there was a beauty product store, a chocolatier, then a shoe store. So it was a preteen girl's dream area. Yes, they had strip malls back then too, but they were usually businesses and convenience stores, not shops that a bunch of preteen girls would want to visit. This is important later on. So, my dad being the awesome parent he always has been, dropped us off at around 6pm at Walmart, and said he would come pick us up when we were ready, but it had to be by 9pm, when most stores would be closed or closing, and it was getting late. I had my brick of a Samsung cell phone to call him when we were ready, and we lived about 15-20 to 20 minutes away, so we were all set. We all proceed to get out of the car, Kelly, Alex, Christy, and myself. We said goodbye and waved while my dad waited to make sure that we got into the store okay. I know this may seem weird to some people, or irresponsible of my dad to just drop us off alone, but this was the norm back then for many of my friends and myself. He knew where we were, their parents knew what we were doing, we had cell phones to call if we needed anything, and we were trusted. This I cannot emphasize enough. We were good kids, so what was the problem, right? Other people. Other creepy, terrible adults were the problem. So we were all giggling and making jokes amongst ourselves, walking around this huge new store that we had never seen nor been in before. To be honest, it was awesome. The four of us meandered through the beauty aisles, talking about stuff preteen girls love to talk about, all the while screwing around harmlessly. Maybe chasing and messing with each other for an aisle or two, but that's it. The only thing that could be considered bad would be when Alex grabbed one of the latex rubber gloves that were dispersed throughout the store on the structural poles that were there for the employees to use for cleaning and sanitizing purposes. She grabbed one of the gloves out of the box that was opened and blew it up like a balloon. We all smacked each other a bit with it and tried to keep it off the ground for another aisle or so. We weren't destroying anything or being too disruptive, besides the giggling and joking around having a grand old time together. Mind you, it was getting later, near the store's closing time, and less and less people were walking around in the Walmart. If we saw anyone in the aisles, we were always respectful kids, and would stop screwing around. Except for the giggling. <laughs> it was cool to feel the freedom of being an adult, getting to walk around the store and buy things with our own money that our parents may or may not have given us still, but we hadn't a care in the world and decided to buy some snacks and nail polish to go along with the movies we were planning on renting from the in-town VHS store, when my dad came and got us later. We proceeded to the register, as it was about 8pm, and we still wanted to check out the beauty store, the chocolatier, and maybe if we had time, the Payless shoe store at the end of the strip. This was going to be an awesome night and I was pumped to have my friends sleeping over without a care in the world. We get to the register, and I offered to pay for anything since we were sleeping over at my house, 
and my dad gave me the money for just that reason. Everyone respectfully declined, because their parents had given them money too. Alex went first, bought the nail polish and some lip gloss. Kelly paid next and bought some lotion and body sprays. Christy bought some Oreos and chips. And then it was my turn. I bought some hair twisties and a bunch of candy. While I was gathering my items in my purse, everyone had started to proceed to the exit, assuming the next was behind them and ready to head down to the next stores outside along the strip mall. Before I could leave the register, there was an older woman who was in line next to me. I noticed her standing behind me, but besides a quick backwards glance and a smile towards her, I was blissfully unaware of anything else. Right as I was gathering my items that I'd bought and placing my plastic Walmart shopping bag into my purse, she grabbed my forearm gently and leaned in to say something to me. I was thrown off for a second as she whispered into my ear, Honey, please be careful. Those two men behind me have been following you girls all throughout the store. Every time I've seen you four, they were there too, watching you girls. I looked at her speechless, and I looked behind her seeing two men in their late 20s to mid-30s standing behind her, watching our whole interaction carefully. They both looked clean-cut, had short hair, buttoned-up collared shirts and slacks, and one had glasses on. I said, Oh my gosh, thank you quietly and walked quickly to catch up with my friends who had already gotten almost to the exit in the time that the woman had stopped me. I caught up to them and told them in a scared voice quickly what the woman had said, and we all instinctively looked back. While the woman was still at the register paying, the men were behind her. Our line of sight connected, and the two men put down whatever BS item they were quote-unquote buying barreled past the woman who had stopped me and started briskly walking towards us. Kelly yelped, and we all instinctively started to run fast. All scared and not understanding the true gravity of the situation we were now unwillingly in. I yelled, Run to the next store, guys! And as we got through Walmart's exit, we went right to head toward the rest of the stores in the Strip. It was that, or the somewhat-lit parking lot with few cars, and even fewer people left in it, and nowhere for us to go, nor escape. My gut told me to get into a store where there were people, and to hurry. We tried the beauty supply store, but we saw it was closed. Then the chocolatier was also closed. We finally saw the lights on the Payless shoe store, shining bright like a beacon, beckoning us into safety. We ran in there, all yelling and crying, not knowing why these men were chasing four preteen girls. The woman in the store seemed shocked when we all barged through the doors, all yelling and speaking loudly, Please help us! These men are chasing us! We began to say what the woman who had stopped me had just said. The Payless worker seemed to be alone, and was in the midst of closing out the register when we had barged in. The woman that was shorter than some of us listened to our pleas and quickly said, Okay, girls, get behind me. 
as we all watched in horror as the two men ran into the store. She said to the men calmly, Can I help you? The man with the glasses spoke and said, We need to take these girls back with us to Walmart right now. She asked them what for. They wouldn't answer her and started to move forward trying to get past her, as she had both of her arms outstretched, blocking us safely behind her small, petite frame. She said, What do you need these young girls for? Glasses then reached around her side and grabbed Kelly's purse out of her hand while saying, They stole something, and we need to take them back there now. I yelled, No, we didn't. He's lying. The lady slightly turned her head to the right while backing us up behind her and asked us, Girls, is that true? Did anyone take something without paying? We all collectively yelled, No! As we proceeded to pull out receipts and our bags with our fully paid items. None of us had taken anything. None of us were like that, especially not at that age. Glasses, being the only man out of the two that spoke, gave Kelly her purse back, mind you, without even looking in it, and then started ripping the rest of our purses out of our hands. He kept Christie's in his hands now as he dropped mine and Alex's on the floor in front of him. He then proceeded to rifle through Christie's bag nonsensically. The woman clearly noticing this, and feeling something was wrong, asked, what exactly did they steal then? Glasses, still doing all the talking, proceeded to suddenly drop Christie's bag and pick mine up off the floor next. Glasses then took out my makeup pouch out of my purse. All that was in there was some used hair ties, butterfly clips, lip gloss, and an eyeshadow palette. The new pack of hair ties that I had just bought was still in my shopping bag. Mind you, neither man ever took my shopping bag out of my hand, only my purse. In fact, we all had our shopping bags still in our hands from when we tried to show our receipts to them when they first accused us. Mind you, the men never once looked at our receipts or our purchased items in our Walmart plastic shopping bags. Probably the first thing you would do as a loss prevention worker accusing said customer of theft, right? Well, they never did. Glasses proceeded to rifle through my makeup bag, grab my bright frosty blue eyeshadow, which was big in the early 2000s and looked banging to be honest, and he said, Aha! What's this here? My big mouth could not take the disrespect anymore. Being from New Jersey, yeah, we're big on that here. And I said, That's not new. Are you kidding me? Look at it, it's clearly been used multiple times. The woman looked at me and then back at the men and said, Sir, that doesn't look brand new to me at all. There's no way she could have just stolen that. This whole time... The four of us girls were intermittently yelling out that we didn't do anything, and that we were clearly being wrongfully accused. The men both then looked at each other, as glasses dropped my purse and walked back towards the other man, who was standing there quietly watching us the whole time, blocking the exit-slash-entrance door. Glasses leaned in, and the silent man whispered something in his ear as glasses nodded in agreement while looking back at us as we stood behind this brave and wonderful woman 
who had become four young girls' protector with neither hesitation nor question. While they were conferring with each other quietly, our second woman protector of the night spoke up. How about I see some ID? You men must have some work identification if you're loss prevention for Walmart, right? They looked at her sharply, and the quiet man whispered something else to Glasses. Glasses then said, We don't have to show you anything. They are in the wrong here, and they need to come with us, or we're calling the police and their parents. The woman then said assuredly, Okay, what if I walk them back over there with you? Glasses quickly and emphatically said, No, we will take them. You've done enough to impede our work tonight. Our protector said, Okay, then how about I call the police and they can come meet us here, and we'll figure out what's really going on. This is the one and only time the quiet man spoke, and he said, Hmm, no need, ma'am. We'll just let these girls off with a warning and tell them that this is their one and only get-out-of-jail-free card. The woman, realizing that something was not right again, asked them for some identification in their names. They quietly looked at one another, and then just left the store. We all started bursting out into hugs of gratitude and thank-yous to this kind woman who had defended our honor and saved us from being wrongfully accused. The woman then briskly walked towards the exit-slash-entrance and locked it, whilst telling us to call our parents. I quickly called my dad and told him what had happened, and he told us to stay put and said he would be right there. You know how I said we lived 15-20 minutes away? Yeah, he got there in less than 10. And once I saw him pull up out in front of the payless, the woman unlocked the door and walked us outside. She helped us into my dad's expedition and told him what had happened. He got out of the car to speak to her more, thoroughly and privately, I believe because they both realized how scared and confused we all were. My dad then thanked our protector and got back into the car. He then proceeded to pull around and park right in front of the Walmart, in the offload area right in front of the store. He got out and told me to lock the doors and not open them until he came back. Mind you, my dad played baseball professionally for over a decade, and is jacked and six foot four. He's where my siblings and I have gotten the mentality of no one screws with our family, our loved ones, and people that can't defend themselves. He was in there for maybe 20 minutes, and when he exited, I could tell that he was upset and furious. He got in the car quietly and said to the four of us, Girls, what exactly happened? We then told him again, more calmly this time. He sat there quietly, as attentive as I've ever seen him, and when we finished, he then spoke. Girls, no one is working for Walmart tonight that looks as you described, and their only loss prevention manager is a woman who's not even here tonight. He told us that he went in and asked for the manager, and after the threat of a lawsuit, they gathered every employee who was working there at that time to come up to the front. None of them were even close to resembling these men. He also said that he lit the store manager up like a Christmas tree about how they could let something like this happen to four children on their premises. I do feel somewhat bad that he yelled at someone who really had nothing to do with the situation, but... 
he was livid. And clearly, he needed to blame someone for what had happened. He then told me next time to call him right away, and that besides that, we did the right thing, and that he was sorry that this happened to us, and that he wasn't able to protect us. He then tried to change the subject and asked us about sports and school ongoings. We became distracted for the remainder of the ride home, and still stopped to get our rented VHS tapes for the night. When we got back to my house, we talked about it amongst ourselves, and none of us had stolen anything. Seriously, no one did. If someone had, they would have come clean for sure by then. Looking back, I'm not quite sure why we didn't call the police. My dad probably realized that there was nothing that they would be able to do. Besides, maybe looking at Walmart's cameras, which may have helped in all honesty. I don't know why we never called the police nor filed a report. Looking back, it kind of seems crazy that we didn't. It just wasn't something that you did back then, I guess. I think my dad just wanted to get us out of there safely, and realized more so than we did how dire of a situation we had narrowly escaped. Looking back, this memory is much more sinister than I initially thought. I always told myself that they were probably lying and didn't want to get in trouble at Walmart, and that they were scared of my dad. But, to be honest... I don't think that was the case at all. First of all, I worked in retail for some years, and employees slash loss prevention cannot follow people out of the store, even with proof that they stole something. They are just instructed to call the police immediately. I actually had a store manager when I worked at Lowe's get fired because he chased out someone who stole upwards of $3,000 worth of copper pipes and fittings that they had actually hid in a bathtub's cardboard box. The manager was fired for this. Come to find out, it's a safety precaution because the companies are liable if said employee gets attacked or hurt from the thief on company property. Also, these men were both extremely clean-cut and younger, inconspicuous-looking men. They did not stand out nor grab one's attention. I mean, us four preteen girls didn't notice them following us throughout the Walmart the majority of the time we were there. Nowadays, human trafficking is much more in the forefront of people's minds. After hearing many others' recollections, I remembered this experience and began to look at it more closely with my adult brain. These men did not work for Walmart. They were clearly trying to lure us away. And if it were not for the two angel women who, in all actuality, saved us that night, who knows what could have happened. So, if you're out there and you hear this, and you were the woman who stopped me after I paid and put yourself between those two men and us girls, I sincerely thank you from the bottom of my heart. If you were the woman who worked at Payless that bravely and fiercely stood up for us, and didn't fall for those scumbags' lies, I sincerely am forever grateful to you. To Glasses and the Quiet Man, I truly hope that you both effed around and found out, and were stopped from doing this ever again to anyone. And for both of your sakes, let's not meet. 
to those that run this podcast, thank you for all that you do keeping these life events fresh in people's minds, and keeping us safe and aware. I sincerely thank you. And, Bookie-Boo, I sincerely thank you for allowing me to tell your story. Hi, Raven. I wanted to share a story with you that happened to my friend and I back in high school. My friend Adrian and I loved photography. We took any extracurricular classes in clubs that we could about it too. We even convinced our parents in letting us go on a three-day photography retreat over the summer and our passion grew even stronger. We told ourselves that after we finished our college courses, we wanted to start our own photography business. So, until then, we took pictures of anything and everything we could. However, while Adrian enjoyed photos of people and animals, I preferred urban decay or ruined photography. Like old buildings and structures long since forgotten and abandoned, being taken over by nature. Vines growing up and around the structures, trees growing through a building. It's a slight eerie, yet beautiful contrast that I adore. But as a high schooler, we didn't have many options for my style of photography, so urbex was usually our way to go. This story took place on one of those days. Sometimes I would stay at my grandma's when I just wanted to get away for a while. I was the second oldest of five kids, and I just wanted to be left alone, so she was the best option for me. I was always close to my grandma, and when my mom and dad went through a divorce, she let me stay with her as long as I wanted. My mom is now with my stepdad, and they had three more kids together. My older brother is much older than me, and he had already moved out at that point. Anyways. She lived in a pretty rundown area, but my stepdad helped keep my grandma's place in top shape, so hers was probably one of the best looking ones on the block. Because her neighborhood was so much older though, there were a lot of empty houses, and one that I particularly liked to look at. It was a soft yellow color on the outside, and was obviously a house, but had been turned into a business for insurance. It had a small sign hanging from the top of the awning with the name of the insurance company. The company was long gone, but they seemed to leave the place just as it was. The grass was now overgrown, which told me it truly was abandoned. Typically, if the place looks empty, but the outside is maintained, it was most likely not inhabited, but someone still owned it and took care of it. Usually people did this in hopes to prevent squatters or scrappers. While we still checked these places out, we had a rule we both agreed on. We left the place just as it was. We weren't there to take things as a souvenir or to make money. We were there to take pictures. So yes, we probably shouldn't enter in the first place, but if there were no trespassing signs, we would still check it out. So after Adrian got permission to stay with me at my grandma's, we both made plans to check out the house. 
My grandma knew I was a bit of a daredevil, but she also knew telling me no would do nothing. So instead, she would tell me to keep my phone on and be careful. Just another reason why I love her. As we approached the home, we tried the door, but it was locked, no surprise. So I tried the window next to the door. The windows were old and the lock was just one of those up and down stoppers. So with a simple jiggle, it would fall, unlocking the window. We both climbed through and the first thing that hit us was the sudden smell of mildew and sitting water. We immediately knew the place probably had unseen cracks causing water to leak into the home. We both knew we had to be careful, but we still wanted to look around. As we walked further in, we pretty quickly saw the culprit of the smell. The ceiling had collapsed, caving into the kitchen. We watched a few drops from the rotting wood splash onto the floor and again, just agreed we wouldn't explore that area beyond the kitchen. We went through a narrow hallway where all the rooms had been turned into small offices and took some pictures. To be honest, it was a little underwhelming, but we still got a few good shots. We started walking back to the front, ready to leave since we couldn't explore the rest of the house. But as we hit the cross section of the hall in the living room slash lobby area, the world around me began to slow down. I felt my foot sink into the floor, and before I could process what's happened, the floor collapsed, causing me to jump backwards. But Adrian was in front of me, and she seemed to be experiencing the same thing I did. She turned to look at me as we felt the floor move, and then before I could blink, she fell through the floor, as if it swallowed her in an instant. I hugged the wall as I screamed out for Adrian praying she was still conscious and could answer me. Thank God she did, but I could hear the pain in her voice. I asked her if she was okay, now trying to lean down to look into the hole. She said she tried to land on her feet, but instantly felt and heard the pop. Once she took a second to gather her thoughts, the excruciating pain hit her all at once. She told me she thinks she broke her ankle or her foot. I now had to find a way to get her out. I told her to stay still and to not move while I tried to quickly and safely find a way down there. It was obviously a basement, most houses around there had them, so I knew there had to be a set of stairs somewhere. I ran back around in the rooms in the bathroom and again looked over the living room and didn't see it. To my dismay, I assumed the basement was probably beyond the kitchen where I really didn't feel safe walking. I yelled down to Adrian, who I can hear whimpering, and tell her the news. We both remained silent after that, trying to figure out what to do. I had pulled out my phone and just stared at the screen, but I didn't know who to call. I doubt my grandma would be able to do anything more than us. Calling my parents would probably mean trouble including possibly not being able to stay at my grandma's anymore and possibly Adrian not being allowed over either. Then there's 911. I feared we would be in legal trouble for being there, which would then just be the tip of the iceberg. As if she read my mind, Adrian called out, don't you dare call anyone. 
it at least relieved a little bit of guilt that she also feared calling for help. But we needed to do something, so I asked her if she had any ideas. I asked her if she saw anything down there we could use. I was now standing on the edge, looking down, and could see her sitting on the ground. After a bit of silence, Adrian mentioned a window she saw nearby. She said it was small, but we could probably get through it. I told her I would go out and look for it and promised to come right back in if I couldn't get it open. I managed to unlock the front door and ran out of it, not caring who may have seen me, and around the side of the house, looking for this window. I nearly missed it as it was covered in weeds and dirt. I quickly tried to rip them out and flatten them so I could get to the window and then felt around the edges determined to figure out how to open it. There was a thick layer of dust and dirt caked onto both sides of that window. The more I touched it, the more it would cling to me, but there were still plenty that wasn't coming off, telling me it was on the inside. This also made it to where I couldn't really see into it. I pulled out my phone to call Adrian, hoping the fall didn't break hers, and then after several rings, she picked up. She said it had actually come out of her pocket, so she was glad I called it to make sure she didn't leave without it. I asked her about the window as I knocked on it and she confirmed that it was the one she saw. I asked her if she had any way to get to it without using her leg too much and she did agree that she could get to it, but there was a tall metal cabinet in front of it. So no matter what, I was going to have to get her out of there. I debated on what I wanted to do, if I should go back in and fall through the hole and try to open the window from the inside, or maybe see if I could find something to help open the window. I didn't want to risk falling in the hole and having the same thing happen to me, so I told myself this window had to be the answer. I saw a tree limb in the yard and broke off all the smaller pieces to try and use it as a wedge. I lined up the branch to the small opening in the window, pulled back my arm, and jammed the branch into it. And as if I was living in some dumb cartoon, the whole window split from the frame. To say that this place was falling apart was an understatement. I quickly kicked in the window and watched it slide across the metal cabinet and fall to the floor, making a loud crashing sound. I stuck my head in, looked at Adrian, who looked just as surprised as I was. We stayed as we were, discussing our options, but trying to move fast, fearing the whole place could just cave in at any point. I was able to climb through the window, it being almost a perfect fit, and balance myself on the wobbly cabinet. Once I was in, I tried to use the cabinet and some old table down there as a ramp or steps up the window. I pulled Adrian onto the desk and then helped her onto the cabinet where she was able to crawl the rest of the way out. Then she sat on the ground as she helped pull me through the window next. We hobbled our way back to my grandma's place trying to think of a likely story, but I knew I wasn't going to be able to lie to her. So we told her the truth. She took us to the hospital and called my parents to let them know. What I didn't expect was that my grandma gave us a cover story. She told my parents that we were sliding down her stairs railing and Adrian got caught on it and fell from the top. I thought it was weak, but I guess coming from my grandma, they ate it up. 
Adrian got all fixed up. She definitely fractured her ankle and did something else to her foot, but thankfully it wasn't worse. After she was completely healed and walking on her own, we continued with our urbex, but we have better rules. We still do not touch anything, but if we do see infrastructural damages, we'll just stay on the outside. Hey Raven, I want to start out by saying that you are my favorite narrator on YouTube. Thank you. Don't get me wrong, there are a lot of excellent narrators that I frequently listen to, same, but you definitely are my favorite. I have two experiences that I would like to share with you, starting with one that happened back in April when I was on my way back from the NASCAR dirt track race night in Bristol, Tennessee with my husband my father-in-law, and my husband's cousin. As I stated above, it was a night race, which means we didn't get on the road to head back home to Indiana until after 11pm that night. My husband's cousin was the one driving, so he put our destination into his phone's GPS for the quickest way back, as three out of the four of us had to work the next day. Thankfully, we all worked second shift. Anyways... For whatever reason, the GPS took us through Virginia. I'm assuming it cut off some of the travel time, but I'm not sure because I did end up falling asleep sometime after the strange incident occurred. It was around 2.30 to 3am, and we were on the same very back country roads in the middle of nowhere Virginia. I was still a little pumped up, as it was my first time going to a NASCAR race, so my husband and I were chatting in the back seat, while my cousin and father-in-law chattered in the front. We were the only ones on the road, as it was a very late Sunday night. The speed limit was 55 or 60, I don't remember exactly, but his cousin was obeying the speed limit. So when we see headlights come up flying behind us out of nowhere, we were a little surprised. We all started making jokes about how we were in Backwoods, Virginia, and that that was probably the welcome wagon. Now, this road was very curvy at times, but the stretch that we were on at that particular moment was a straightaway, so we could see a fair distance in front of and behind us, and we could see a vehicle approaching. Fast. I also need to mention that this was only a two-lane road. When the vehicle got close enough, we could see that it was an ambulance. It didn't have its sirens or emergency lights on, but whoever was driving it was going way over the speed limit. They rode our bumper for a few minutes before erratically swerving over into the opposite lane to pass us. We had a clear view of the inside as it passed, and we could see that all the lights in the cab were on, as if they were transporting someone. But there was no one back there. Not an EMT. Nobody. We could see the black gurney in the upright position, but no one was on it. I remember thinking that it was strange and trying to get a look at the driver because, one, he was driving kind of recklessly, and two, why would the lights be on in the back if there were no patients back there? But I couldn't see a driver. I couldn't see anyone. Once it passed, it took off like a bat out of, you know, where. 
about three quarters of a mile up the road, it began to get very curvy again, but then straightened back out after a little bit. We should have seen the ambulance again, and we should have been able to at least see it in the distance on the part of the road that straightened back out, because there's no way an ambulance could have taken those curves at the speed that it was going. I would say that it had to be going at least 85 to 90 miles an hour. There were no intersections or turnoffs. We were on a country highway in the sticks with no residential homes, nor businesses. If the ambulance had crashed, we would have seen some evidence of a crash. Even if it flipped and landed off the road out of sight, we would have seen damage to the trees and brush that lined the highway. Just something. But there was nothing, and we did look because we all thought that it was just so weird. My father-in-law asked if anybody got a good look at the driver, and I explained that I tried but wasn't able to. I'm not really sure if it was because of the glare of the lights that I couldn't see a driver, but nobody else saw one either. After that, we referred to it as the Ghost Ambulance. The second experience happened to me at work earlier tonight, and has actually happened three times in the past week, all at work. So, I really enjoy all of the stories you read, but the Glitch in the Matrix ones are my favorite. I listen mostly at my place of employment because it keeps me from being bored to tears while I work. Thank you for that. I need to explain my job and its boring details in order for my story to make sense, so... I apologize. I'm a machine operator at a plastics factory. Basically, the company I work for makes headlights and turn signal casings for cars and trucks. Most of the parts that I work with have a left and a right part. My job is to take them off the belt as they come down, cut the parts off of what is called the sprue, the little plastic pieces the parts are connected to when the machine spits them out, and pack them into their respective totes or boxes for shipping. The packaging has individual slots for each part to fit into nicely and neatly. Also, the parts are identical. Most nights, I'm operating two machines and you have to find what I call your groove in order to keep up with whatever machine you're responsible for. Otherwise, you'll have parts piling up under the conveyor belt and you don't want that. The parts come down the belt, attached to the sprue. This is called a shot. So to be clear, each shot contains a left and a right part. What works for me is to clear the belt, which is anywhere between three to six shots, stack them on the table, and then cut each left part, pack them, and then repeat for the right. Now for the weird stuff. The incident that happened last Thursday was actually the weirdest, which was the second time this happened. I had about three parts left before the set I was working on was full. So, I finished the process that I just described, put my last three parts in each tote, rights and lefts, grabbed the lids and put them on the totes. There were no parts on the table, just empty sprues that I had not yet thrown away. However... When I was getting ready to take the full totes over to the skids, I glanced back down at my workstation and there were six parts still attached to the sprues, just laying there on the table, like I had cut the rights and packed them. 
I did a double take and quickly took the lid off of the left part's tote, and it was completely full. Confused, I checked the right's tote, but it was as it should be as well. I checked the floor and the waste bin to see if there were six right parts that had somehow fallen. Maybe I'd cut them and forgot. But there was nothing. And why would I cut six extra parts when I knew I only had three slots to fill? And then why only the rights? It just didn't make sense. For this particular part, it is very easy to spot if you put it in the wrong tote, a left in the right, or vice versa. And the slots of the totes are just the right size for one individual part, so you can't put two parts in one slot. There is no reason there should have been any parts on the table, because if one part is bad, and you have to throw it out, you also have to throw out the opposite side automatically to keep things even. And besides, I haven't even had any bad parts in that machine that night. So where did the extra parts come from? As I said, I've had two other similar experiences at work, but that one was the most detailed instance. Also, I remember right before it happened, my feet and legs felt a little strange, like I was wading through warm water. Afterwards, I thought to myself, that must be what it feels like walking through dimensions. Because that definitely felt very glitchy. I want to preface this by saying that I don't really get out much, and the last few years have been pretty rough mentally. Just keep that in mind, I guess. I'm pretty reclusive, only going out when I need to for food, gas, or work. When I got invited to a party, I was initially hesitant, but the guy was cute, and I'd honestly gotten pretty tired of staying in my apartment alone every night, binge-watching whatever on Netflix. The party was at 8, and I left my apartment at 7.45, deciding to walk instead of the 10-minute trek to the frat house to save gas. I know what it sounds like, 20-something girl, walking to a party, alone at night. But I honestly wasn't worried, even though I should have been in retrospect. I live in a big college town, bunch of apartments and frat houses. Not much going on besides parties and cars driving up and down the street. I had personal experience with how quiet and peaceful the town was at night. I'd sometimes sit on the balcony after work and just watch the sky. I'd never hear a single sound, other than the crickets and the occasional kids playing out in the street later than they should be. And the walk to the party was uneventful, as I knew it would be, and I got there just before it started. I was expecting the frat house to be full of bro dudes and girls, but when I arrived... There was just the guy who invited me. I asked where everyone else was. Ah, oh, don't worry. The party types don't show up until way later. Probably grabbing beer or something. Come on in. I knew that I shouldn't have. Every single part of my body was screaming at me to not go in. To wait for these supposed party types. 
so that I wouldn't be alone with this random guy. But I said, sure, okay. I don't know why I went in. Maybe I was desperate after all those years of just going to and from work, never really having friends, never spending any actual time in the town after moving in three years ago. Was that all this was? A desperate attempt to connect with someone? Even if it was a total stranger alone in a frat house. I followed him into the living room. A bunch of snacks and drink cups were on the table. A big karaoke machine in the corner and a bunch of solo cups lined up in a beer pong formation on the dining table. Which had been moved into the living room, I guess to keep the party somewhat contained. We sat down and talked for a while. He was really nice, charismatic. We talked about his favorite movies. He was a huge Marvel movie guy. I was always into DC more, and we had a friendly argument about which was better. Before long, I started to realize how much time had passed. A half hour, at least, since we sat down. Then, there were a bunch of knocks on the front door, followed by someone rapidly ringing the doorbell. The guy, whose name we'll just refer to as D, got up gingerly and walked to the door and swung it open. Let's get this party started, people! It was the other people, there for the party. My chest, which had been tight the entire time waiting for either the party people to show up, or for this guy to make some creepy move on me, finally released and relaxed. The people flooded into the house. Kegs of beer, more snacks, and one guy was carrying a big black duffel bag, which I'd later find out was carrying a metric ton of weed. The party went on smoothly. For the first time in forever, I had a full conversation with someone new. A few new people, actually. Aside from work, I barely spoke to anyone. Not because I didn't want to, but because I was cripplingly anxious at all social interactions. Around 12am, and I decided that I'd had one too many drinks, and also my fill of people for probably the next decade. So I say my goodbyes to D and headed out, not before he asked for my number, which I so hesitantly and shakily gave. Not because I was creeped out, but because I think I genuinely liked this guy. I started my trek back home. Like I said before, it was only a 10 minute walk, but I was extremely drunk. So I had to make more slow and deliberate steps to assure that I didn't trip and smash my face into the pavement. Around what I can only assume was the six minute mark of the walk, and only about two to three blocks away from my apartment, I started to become aware of a weird and growing feeling of being watched. The walk so far had been me holding myself up against each wall along the way of every building, and taking really slow steps to keep balanced. I never really looked around me at all, just down at my feet and forward. I had a random urge to look back, so I did. And I wish that I hadn't. Or at least that's how I felt in that moment. Because if I didn't turn around, I wouldn't have seen the broad dark figure tailing me from about 20 feet behind. 
it took my brain at least a solid 30 seconds to realize what I was seeing. I didn't stop walking, which was hard given the circumstances. At first I thought, nothing to worry about, you aren't the only person that can walk around at night. This is a party town after all. That was before I glanced down at their hand, and I saw the glint of light hit the edge of what I assumed was a long blade extending from their arm. My eyes widened, but before I could turn around and quicken my pace, I tripped over a trash bag that was laying on the sidewalk. I hadn't been looking forward for at least a minute, I was too focused on staring at the person behind me. I pushed myself up and turned back towards the person, who was now closer to ten feet away from me. I spun around quickly and dizzily and started sprinting in the direction towards my apartment, screaming for help along the way. But there was nobody. Everyone must have either been at the party or a party. Whoever it was kept pace with me all the way until we reached my apartment. I stumbled up the stairs and I could hear the pounding of their footsteps on the hard concrete steps. As I reached from my door, I felt a hand grab my hair and pull me down to the ground. I let out a yelp as my head hit the solid ground. This person knelt down. It was a man, middle-aged. I could smell alcohol on his breath and he was smiling this horrible, toothy grin at me. He put the blade against my cheek and literally whispered, I've been waiting a long time for this. What the hell was that supposed to even mean? Who was this guy? I flailed my arms and legs, but he'd pinned me down. I thought for sure I was done for when I heard rapid footsteps coming up the stairs. Suddenly, a large shape hit the man, hard, sending him flying into the railing and then over the side. I heard a loud thud as the man hit the ground below after plummeting two stories. That large shape actually turned out to be D. Turns out after I gave him my number and started walking home, he kept an eye on me to make sure that I would be okay, at least for as long as he could see me. He told me that right before I turned the corner and out of sight of the frat house, he noticed a man walking from the other side of the street, out near the woods, and the guy went in my direction. So... He followed and caught up with us right as the man had pinned me down. The stalker, or whatever you want to call him, I guess. He didn't survive. He fell and had a head-on collision with the pavement. The police were called. Me and Dee gave our statements, and thankfully they left. Days later, we did find out the stalker's real name. I'll keep it indisclosed for safety reasons but he'd had a bunch of photos of girls from the town, shot from what seemed to be hundreds of yards away, and in that pile of creepy photos, there were a few of me sitting on my apartment balcony at night, just staring at the sky, and also a few of me driving to and from work. I then moved out of that place a year later, and moved in with Dee. After all that happened... I actually gave him more and more of my time, until I realized I just didn't feel safe when he wasn't with me. So, we started dating, and I never looked back. 
I'm still working on how I feel about this, and trying to open up more and more every day, and at least one good thing came out of that whole crap show. The creepiest part about that whole thing is the guy had to have waited in those woods for a few hours, because his house was like an hour away from the rest of the neighborhood. I can't imagine what would have happened if I left the party too early, after assuming that D was the bad guy, and decided to act on those earlier impulses. There used to be an old industrial area back in the 80s that sat practically behind my childhood neighborhood. There were a few old factories and what I think was some kind of medical supply and lab back there. I remember going with my parents as my mom dropped something off there. By the late 90s to early 2000s, the factories had seemingly been shut down or closed and the medical place had moved. That made a perfect area for a lot of teens such as myself to hang out and do things we probably shouldn't have been. It also had a lot of nooks and crannies that we could run to and hide if someone came patrolling the area. I'm sure we had all thought about it, but none of us, or at least no one in my friend circle, had ever gone into one of them. But then we got to talking about it, and all of us, being bored, opted to check it out. There were five of us going in that day, fueled by our curiosity and readiness to explore a new and unknown place. We helped the girls over the fence, then the remaining three of us climbed over. Once at the entrance, we all noticed we were not going to get through the front door. There were thick boards nailed to the entrance, so we walked around the inner building, trying to avoid the road. We came across a window that you had to jump to look into. It was pretty close to the ground on the inside, so one of my friends said this was probably our best way in. However, I didn't realize the window didn't open, and my friend was basically asking permission to break it to get in. So when we all shrugged and agreed to go in, we jumped as he unexpectedly kicked in the window. That's how Mikey had always been, so I don't know why we were all surprised. We followed our same procedure over the fence as we all went in one by one. Once inside, we looked around to see everything still in its place, but covered in a thick layer of dust. The east and west walls were lined with those same windows, which all cast the light down onto the factory lines and floor. At first, it was a bit of an eerie sight. The place wasn't picked up and cleaned like how I would expect a factory to look, right before it closed for the night. No, this place looked like everyone left in a hurry, such as in an emergency evacuation. There were gloves scattered on the ground, small pieces on the belts, containers of bolts and screws spilled all over. It made me stop and wonder what had happened. What caused people that worked here to leave so quickly? There was no immediate indication of there being a fire or explosion. There was nothing spilled on the floor, and certainly nothing we could smell. In fact, the only thing we could smell was the dirt and stale air. I'm not sure how to describe it, sorry. 
If you've ever explored a sealed up or abandoned place, you know what I'm talking about. We started walking around as some of us split up. Mikey and Gloria went one way, while Billy, Kurt, and I went another, agreeing to meet back in the middle. Billy and I had been flirting on and off, so it was no surprise when she clung to me like she was scared. As we made our way towards the back, we saw several smaller rooms that appeared to be for storage, or one as a sort of employee lounge. There was an old, tattered, and clearly used couch, a wooden table with two standing chairs left, and remains of what looked like the two other chairs that had broken and fallen apart. There was a small kitchenette-like area with a sink, which is where I had to do a double take. The sink had a small amount of water in it, but the water didn't look dirty or like it had been sitting for years or even days. Hell, it didn't even smell stagnant. I turned on the faucet and, to my surprise, it worked. Billy and Kurt were in the room and witnessed what I had just did, and I explained to them why I did it. Billy was already nervous about this whole thing, and our discovery definitely seemed to put Kurt on alert, but not enough to make him want to leave. And of course, what else would make an abandoned factory creepier than having a cellar? The door was at the end of the hall and easily opened as the door creaked. Billy was clinging to my arm as we walked down the stairs behind Kurt. He flipped the switch and, surprisingly, the light kicked on too. This place had obviously been closed for years, yet the power and water was still on. Why? We looked around the small room and immediately noticed it had been turned into a makeshift bedroom. There was a small pile of blankets and tarps on the floor, and everything else had been shoved and stacked into the corner of the room. Underneath the old buckets of junk and detritus was just an old desk holding it up. But what really caught my attention was on the edge of the desk. There were probably a dozen old, worn-out dolls arranged in a neat line. They were all Barbie-like ones, each a different style between the hair and clothing they had on. But the one thing they had in common was that all of the eyes had been scraped or scratched off. It was pretty damn creepy. This place had no indication of being a toy factory. In fact, it looked like it made large equipment based on all the bolts and large metal sheets all over the place. So where did these dolls even come from? Of course, my only thought was that they were brought here by whomever made the bed. Billy was already tugging at me, saying we should go, and I had no reason to say no. This was the last place we had to check, so I thought it was best for us to go back to the front, hoping Mikey and Gloria were waiting for us. As we walked back towards the entrance, Mikey shouted for us. I could hear in his voice. He tried to sound calm, but you could tell there was distress. We all walked quickly to the assembly line, and he brought us all in close, saying we needed to leave. No one questioned this, and we all went back out the window we used prior. Once we were out, Mikey again told us to keep going and was adamant we needed to leave the area, suggesting we go to my place. I didn't hesitate to offer this either, and we all walked back in silence. 
I watched as Mikey looked behind us on occasions, and Gloria looked absolutely petrified. We saw some pretty creepy and unsettling things ourselves, but I was wondering what they saw that had them so terrified. Once we got back to my place, we sat in the back of Kurt's truck and discussed what we saw. After sharing what we saw, I could tell by Mikey's reaction that it only confirmed something for them. They told us that they looked in a little side room that had a bunch of books and cubbies. They all had labels on them in the form of like a first initial and last name, and most of them still had things in them. They said they were looking through the items but didn't take anything. None of us ever did. Then they looked over the books. As they pulled out the books, they found two that were carved out, and inside one of them was cash. Mikey debated on taking a stack for a split second, but thankfully, Gloria convinced him it was a bad idea, and I'm glad she did. As they left the room, they were going to go upstairs where it looks over the assembly floor, but as they did, they saw two guys standing up there. Both of them looked very frail and sickly, but not in the elderly sense. But then Mikey noticed one of the guys had something. Between the railing he was holding onto in his hand, he could clearly make out a gun. That was when he tried to stay calm and act like he didn't see them and called for us. We were all pretty freaked the hell out after he told us this, and now we were looking all around making sure no one followed us here. No one ever came around, and that included the police, so we all assumed that they weren't supposed to be there either. We shook off the bad vibes that place gave us and just agreed that we were done going there and would find a new place to hang out. I'm sure it's been thought of by the others too, but while I'm thankful those guys didn't do anything to us, I worry about what could have happened if they did. Or even, what if Mikey and Gloria did take the money? Was it theirs? Would they have tried to stop them? It was a horrible thought I tried to forget, because if they were to have acted, no one knew where we were, and we could have just gone missing, never to be seen again. Hey, okay, I'm not sure where to begin. This isn't one of those, oh, he looked at me funny in the grocery store, let's not meet kind of stories. My life was actually in danger, and I wasn't sure if I was going to make it out alive. I hate those stories where someone is looking at someone strangely and that ends up being their story. I live on a property in a rural country town. It isn't close to the town itself, and is about 15 to 20 minutes away. I can't see my neighbor's house, and they certainly can't see mine. The property is about 100 acres of land, some bushland with some paddocks and a small garden close to the house. We have three guard dogs to alert and, well, to bite anyone who gets too close. Even though I'm an adult, my parents don't like leaving me at home alone at night, and before this happened I thought they were being ridiculously overprotective of me. 
I was settling in for the night with a movie, some popcorn, and I was waiting for a friend to come meet me. We have gates, but they're mostly left unpadlocked. Basically, the unspoken rule is if you open a gate, you close it. Mainly so livestock doesn't get out of the paddocks. Anyway, sorry, you'll find that I tend to ramble a lot. My friend texted me, telling me that she would be running a little late. This isn't uncommon for her, as she is pretty terrible at time management. I settled down in front of the TV, and then I heard the dogs barking. They're idiots, and sometimes will bark at a mob of kangaroos jumping past, or I thought they were excited because my friend got here. It was aggressive, and I heard a loud yelp. I got up and grabbed my crowbar ready and peeked out the window. I saw my dog running back to the house, limping, and I opened the front door to let him in. He was bleeding. Oh, it was on. <laughs> I didn't immediately call the police because, one, it would take them a long time to get out here, and two, I didn't want to call them if this was just a feral dog or something. They would never let me live it down. It looked like someone had possibly stabbed him, but it didn't look like it hit any vital organs. I wrapped towels around him, hugged him, and told him he would be okay. I was really scared. When I looked back, there was a scruffy and dirty-looking man standing at the window looking in. This wasn't really uncommon. People would go for a walk in the bush, not understand how to get back, and then follow the nearest road. It was weird how he didn't call out, and didn't look like he'd been stuck outside for a while. So, I asked him, Are you alright, mate? He knocked again. Can I come in? Now, normally if my family were home, we may let him in and call the police, and then the cops would just drive them home or wherever. I didn't want to let a random man into the house, though. My dog's barking and snarling. He has a scary bark, and it tends to keep people away. Do you need me to call the cops, mate? My tone was a lot less friendly and more concerned this time. No, don't call the cops. Let me in. I want to come in. He demanded, and then shook the doorknob roughly. Now piss off, I said. I picked up the phone and called the police. Now, even if the cops left immediately, it would still take them a good amount of time to get to the property, and the creepy leer on the man's face told me that he must have known that too. The operator answered me. I told her that I needed the police and that there was a man trying to break into my house. He then broke the glass with something in his hand and was trying to open the lock. I screamed and backed up, and then ran toward the back of the house and opened the door to run out. I hated leaving my dog locked in another room. He grabbed my arm, and he yanked me backwards. He said something to me, but I couldn't quite make it out. We struggled for a while. He kept trying to pull open my shirt, and I was screaming. I was punching, biting, kicking him. I wasn't going to go down without a fight. My dog then pushed through the door, that little legend. Even when he was injured, he still came to help. He grabbed this guy's arm, 
bit down and he shook. The man screamed so loud, and I took the opportunity to get a quick hit into the guy's head. I just wanted to knock the guy out. I wasn't trying to kill him. When he was on the ground, I pulled my dog off of him and we sat nearby. I held a knife in my hand and just hugged my dog. He was bleeding, but it wasn't lethal. As I thought, it took the cops a while to get there. The Ambos came too and took care of us. He woke up and told them that I went crazy and that my dog was rabid and vicious. They didn't believe him. My parents panicked when they got home, but they were happy how I handled myself. We obviously pressed charges against him, and screw that guy. And Chief, my dog, and my savior, got stitched up and is still kicking. He gets treats all the time, and honestly, he's spoiled rotten. We upped the security at the house, just in case it ever happens again, but I doubt that it will. We now have cameras around the place, and motion lights in case some stranger ever tries to pay us a visit. The other doggos, unfortunately, were terrible guard dogs, but that's okay. They're still beloved pets. As for the idiot who attacked me, he is in prison. And I hope every day that he spends in there is total misery. So, a few years ago, I had a friend that had finally gotten herself out of an incredibly abusive relationship. We all chipped in to help her out, and she was able to get her own place. I understand that the cycle of abuse is difficult to break. To get out of a situation where someone you love has turned to someone that loves to hurt you is an impossible situation to navigate. So... When she was able to get out of it and move out, I wanted to do something for her, with her permission, of course. So we got a few friends together and threw a housewarming party. Her new place is in the trendier part of town, filled with lots of cool places and young people. And honestly, the atmosphere in that part of town is absolutely electric. So I knew that if we had our little bash it would be a great time, and we likely wouldn't have any issues. The place that she got wasn't exactly huge, so we worked out a good number of people that wasn't too much, and limited every invite to the person and one guest. A lot of people RSVP'd, and we actually had a decent headcount by the time the party was scheduled. That night, the house was actually a bit more packed than we expected, but not overly so. The music was going, drinks were flowing, and everyone seemed to be in high spirits. I was loving the atmosphere, and my friend was nothing but smiles. So, overall, it felt like a success. Then, things took a bit of a creepy twist. About an hour into the party, I noticed a guy that I didn't recognize. There were a few people there that I didn't really know, but... I was at least partially acquainted with them. This guy I had never actually seen before in my life. I assume he was someone's plus one. He had these really piercing blue eyes, 
His head was shaved, and there was something about him that was kind of bothering me. I don't know if it was how he was staring at me, or how his smile was a little bit too eager, but something was out of place about him. After I noticed him staring in my direction, I saw that he started walking over to me, and I thought that I was going to have to go through the whole rejection dance. He looked like an okay guy, but he wasn't quite my type, if you catch my drift. He stepped up to me and kind of pushed himself in front of me, saying, Hey, I'm John. I tried to be polite, saying, Hi, John. I'm my name. Are you enjoying the party? Trying to be a nice host and all. He nodded, saying that he was, in his words, digging the vibe, and then kind of stood there saying nothing and just staring at me. I smiled and looked around awkwardly waiting for him to say something, or for the opportunity to walk away. Then, it got even more awkward. He looked at me and said, Hey, you want to go break in the bedroom? I turned to look at him with a look like, Bro, did you just ask that? I shook my head and said, John, I'm going to be as direct with you as I possibly can, and say that was honestly one of the creepiest things you could have ever have asked someone that you just met. He stared at me like I had said something offensive, like he hadn't just asked me to go to the bedroom with him after introducing himself. He then says, Well, let me know if you change your mind, and turns to walk away. If that was it, honestly this would have been creepy, but not to the point of writing in a story. But of course, John was a creep. As the night wore on, I would turn and he would be there staring at me. He would randomly wave at me from across the room. He would accidentally run into me when I was going to the kitchen for whatever reason. One time is a coincidence. Two or three times is intentional. It hit a point where it was kind of starting to feel predatory. I decided that I would confront him and tell him off. I walked over, and he perked up like I was about to take him up on his previous offer. I told him that I was not interested in him, and that he needed to knock off his creepy behavior. He laughed and said, I'm just enjoying the party. You should calm down. Maybe smile a bit more. I rolled my eyes and told him to just leave me alone. But of course, he didn't. In fact, he got worse. It got to the point that he was actively following me around. Every step I would take, he would follow me four steps behind. And he was making it obvious. It hit a point where I was done. And I went to talk to my friend that we were throwing the party for. And if nothing else, she could ask him to leave. I told her that some guy named John was starting to piss me off, and I asked her if we could go ahead and tell him to leave, and she looked at me with a confused look on her face, asking who it was. I grabbed her and pulled her into the other room where I'd last seen him, and he was still standing there. I pointed toward him and said, him, John. The look on her face changed from one of confusion to shock. It was pretty clear that she knew who this guy was. I asked her what was wrong, and she responded with, His name isn't John, it's James. 
and he's my ex's brother. How her ex's brother had known about where she moved, I don't know. Why he decided to show up at the party and be a creepy person towards at least myself, I'm not sure. But what I do know is that hearing that this guy was related to the man that had been physically abusive with my friend was enough to make me enraged. At that point, I said to hell with formalities, and I figured the best way to get this a-hole out of the house was to turn the party into a mob. I yelled for everyone's attention. The entire room of about 20-30 people turned to look at me, and I immediately pointed at James and said, This man needs to leave. Now. Everyone turned their attention to James, who I think realized that he was going to have to go, or risk being forced out. He raised his hands in defeat, and started backing up towards the door. As he got to the door, he pointed towards my friend and yelled out toward her, I'll let my brother know you said hi, and then turned and walked out. Now, I know that the story wasn't terribly scary, but I want to point out that, for my friend and myself, this was a terrifying situation. Her abusive ex that she had finally escaped had possibly sent his brother to her new place, meaning he knew where she lived now, and this was very clearly his brother being willing to be a part of that cycle of abuse. This obviously left her in a really bad way, thinking that he was going to show up, and that he wanted to continue to ruin her life. So far, he hasn't done anything to her, and it has been a couple of years now, so maybe this was just one last slap in the face. But it was enough to make her feel uncomfortable and unsafe in her new home. She does have a new man in her life now, and I think that helps her some, but hopefully she never has to face her ex, or his brother, ever again. The story takes place in February of 2022 in the American Midwest. All names will be changed for privacy reasons. So, my friend Alice and I decided that we want to go do some urban exploring. We want to take some cool pictures and, just in general, see some amazing old architecture. We decide on spots that I will not name in this story as urban exploring is not acceptable in the eyes of the law. We plan for the day, gather what we need, and head out to the location. We drive separately, and meet up once we're there. Luckily, there is still a parking lot that we can convene at. We park our cars, say our hellos, and start walking towards the building. Now, at this location, there are three buildings, one of which is still in use as a local business, the other two, however, are in disarray. Those are the two that we have our sights set on. We gather our belongings and start walking towards the disheveled buildings. There is spray-painted graffiti all over the inside and outside of the buildings. Some graffiti reads funny or weird things that some kids wrote, and some writing seems more... menacing. Of course, the menacing graffiti was most likely done by kids as well. 
but it did set a tone of sorts. We enter the building after taking a few pics of the outside, and when we walk in, we noticed it's a good 10 degrees cooler than the already crisp outside air. We meander through the halls and see that the place is practically falling apart. Alice begins to tell me about the last time they were here, and the person they were with at the time mysteriously ended up with three large scratches on their arm. They never fell, or even brushed against a wall. Alice said that they could feel just a presence, and not a good one. They said that their chest was tight the whole visit, and it felt hard to breathe. As we walk through the first building, we take note of the interior, and talk about what this place might have looked like back in the day. As we're chatting, I see a car driving and coming towards us. I scream, Car! And then immediately after, Alice screams, Run! As fast as we can, we bolt out of the building trying to avoid a felony charge for trespassing. We make it out, panting and worried that a cop has got wind that we were there. However, it was just a passer-through, and the car was now gone and nowhere in sight. We build the courage to then go into the second building, and this building has a sense of heaviness to it. We're exploring around and decide to take a photo in an aesthetic-looking part of the interior. To take this shot, I had to go down about half a level, and Alice stayed on the first floor. I went down and into the little closet room that you could see down into from where Alice was. Alice starts snapping photos, when all of a sudden we hear, Hello? We freeze. Alice looks at me, and I look at them. Alice shouts once more, Run! We scatter like cockroaches, sure that a police officer is outside waiting with handcuffs and a felony charge. But once we gather ourselves and make it outside, we see that there's no cars on the premises, or even driving away. Other than our own vehicles, of course. We walk around the premise, and to our disbelief, we see no one. Not a single person is to be found. We're both shaken, and can't believe what just happened. We both heard a man say hello. We call it quits for the day and decide that we've gotten enough photos, and as we're leaving, I look up at the building that we were just in, and I see... something. I'm not sure what, but I see movement, if that makes sense. The next day, I wake up with giant scratches on my belly. It makes a perfect A shape on me. I think it's weird, but I don't think too much about it until I tell Alice. They're in shock. They say, like, A for Alice? I gasped and immediately cleansed my apartment. There have been no other marks on my body since. Alice and I agree that we both have spent enough time at that location, and we have no desire to return. Hello, Raven. I'm a huge fan of your reading and love that you encourage people to share their strange and unexplainable stories. I've been listening for about a year now, 
and I thought it might be time to share my own experience. Since I can remember, I've had dreams that later come to fruition, or end up affecting my awake life in some way. These are just a couple of examples of such dreams. I graduated high school in June of 1998 and gave birth to my firstborn in September of 1999. Shortly after graduation, but prior to getting pregnant, I began having a recurring dream that I had not graduated. In my dreams, I always found myself back in school, lost and trying to figure out my class schedule. I would be wandering that semi-familiar hallway and telling each faceless student that I came across that I didn't belong there because I'd already graduated. I would wake up feeling strange, but just chalked it up to the pressure put on me by my parents to get my high school diploma. Fast forward 17 years, and my oldest child graduates high school a year early. The school let everyone know that although they were still waiting for the scores from the final test, they were going to go ahead with the graduation ceremony. One day in July, my kiddo was watching a softball game and happened to run into her principal. He told her that the test results were finally in, and unfortunately she had failed by just two points. She would be required to return to the school next year and remain in attendance until she could retake the test and pass it. So... My dream had actually come true, only not in a way that I ever could have imagined. I am happy to say that she did pass the retake, and only spent about two weeks there before she was done for good. Not once have I had that dream since. The last thing I want to add is that this dream phenomena has been a thing that my mom has experienced forever. She's had dreams of people passing away, and they always do within a few weeks. Sometimes it's even people who aren't sickly or expected to pass. We're of indigenous descent, and I'm not sure if that contributes at all. I really would love to learn more about any special gifts that I may have been given, but I don't really know where to start. Story 2 is about a possible abduction. On the night of July 9th, 2023, I had a dream that I was in a hospital setting and appeared to be getting prepped for some sort of procedure. All staff had their faces completely covered, and I don't recall any of them speaking. I was the only one to actually say anything. I somehow felt or got the impression that they were about to insert an IV, so I told them about the scar tissue in the crooks of my arm from years of plasma donations. I explained that I usually have to get IVs in the back of my hand. I remember there being three people in the room, and they all exchanged a quick glance before I felt the IV going in, and that was it. I also recall not being able to see any features of their faces, not even the eyes. They all had masks and goggles on, and the goggles seemed to be reflecting the bright, sterile lights in such a manner so as to keep me from seeing their eyes. I woke up what felt like hours later. After a bit, I thought back to my dream and looked at my right hand. And, I just so happened to see what looked to be a scab from an IV right on a vein, 
exactly like I've had so many times before when actually being in the hospital. I can't explain it, and my boyfriend chooses to believe that my cat must have scratched me during the night. I don't feel like that makes sense since it wasn't a scratch, but rather a tiny puncture wound. I have always been the kind of person that likes to take night drives. The roads are less congested, the world seems to settle into a settling calm, and my thoughts drift freely as I navigate the dark, quiet streets. I have one drive, however, that changed a lot of things for me. One that sort of ruined things for me, and made me realize how close to death my simple little drive got me. It was about two in the morning, and I was returning home from a friend's house. The drive was a smooth one, I knew it like the back of my hand. I was just drifting along, my headlights piercing through the darkness, the radio playing softly in the background, as I kept on down this seemingly endless road, flanked by dense woods on either side. As I was breathing in the cool night air as it blasted me in the face through the window, I noticed a car stopped on the side of the road with its hazards flashing. I kind of paused mentally for a moment, thinking, should I stop? It was really late, and I was alone, but the idea of leaving someone stranded in the middle of the road like this just didn't sit right with me. I decided to stop just ahead of the car, a safe distance away from the stranded vehicle. A man stepped out of the car, and I noticed that he was limping slightly, but a look of relief spread across his face as he approached my window, so I assumed that he did need help. He looked a bit disheveled. He was wearing a dirty shirt and some old-looking sweatpants, but nothing about him was screaming red flag. He just looked like he chose to dress lazily that day, or maybe he just didn't have a lot of money. Hey, thank you so much for stopping. My car, um, broke down. His voice trembled a bit from what I assumed was the cold. Is there any way that I could ask you to give me a ride to the nearest gas station? I hesitated a bit, torn between wanting to help this guy and that nagging feeling that something was a bit off. I could call a tow truck for you. I figured I should at least offer that to see if he would be enough. The guy sighed and looked around for a moment and then shivered again. I appreciate that, but that would take so long. It is seriously freezing out here. Please, just, just a quick ride. This is where I started to feel a bit guilty. It was pretty cold, and he was definitely not dressed for the weather. I hesitated, but... Then I decided that it was just a quick ride down the road, so I let that part of me that wanted to help out win. He got in, thanking me profusely, directing me to a gas station a few miles down the road. After he gave me the directions, he just sat there silently staring out the window. I glanced at him occasionally, noticing that he was clenching his hands, sweating a bit, and just looking a bit unsettled. 
this kind of bothered me. Since he said that it was too cold outside, but now he was sweating. It wasn't that hot in my car. It was a bit strange, but I just figured that I would get him to the gas station and it would all be over. We finally arrived at the gas station. He thanked me and got out of the car, his voice still a bit shaky. He shut the door and as he was walking away, I noticed something on the floor of my car. I was about to roll the window down and call out to the guy to tell him that he dropped something, but when I clicked on the cab light, I noticed what it was that was on the floor. It was a knife. A small kitchen knife, smeared with blood. After a second or two, it kind of clicked. He was holding this knife in his pant leg, and that's why he was limping. It must have fallen out during the trip, and I guess that he just didn't notice that it wasn't there anymore, because he was walking towards the gas station. I immediately grabbed my phone and called 911, telling them that I just gave a ride to a guy that I think may have stabbed someone. I had to explain the whole situation, and as I was doing so, I thought about the car. I realized that he was in the seat, but I didn't see him driving it. I just saw him get out and he didn't want me to call a tow truck, which made me think that, maybe, his victim could have been in the car. To wrap this up, I drove back in the direction of the car with 911 still on the phone, informing them where I was going, and I told them that I would wait for the officers. I had to give them all the information that I could, what the guy looked like, what he was wearing, everything he'd said, I will also note that there was no one in the car, so I was wrong on that thought. They took the knife, obviously, and they took his car, and I was questioned a lot about the whole thing. After a while, I think they were satisfied that I wasn't involved, but they told me that they would give me a call if they had any further questions. I have literally no idea if they ever caught that guy, but I did get called in again for some more questions, but the questions seemed really vague, like they didn't know where to take the investigation. I do hope that they caught him eventually, and I hope that they found whoever it was that he'd stabbed. To this day, I cannot shake the visual of that man as he got out of my car. I will remember his face for probably the rest of my life. Hello, Raven. You recently asked for stories, so here are a few from when I worked in a convenience store in Portland, Oregon. This was my second time living in Portland. This time I lived with my brother in Oregon City. I rode a bike back and forth to work, and the way there was a steep hill. When I first started, I had to walk part way, and by the end I was able to ride up it at speed. This means I was in good shape. I worked at a small store near Clackamas Community College. The neighborhood was nice, little to no crime that I experienced. In fact, in the time that I worked there, I'd only had three incidents. The first is small, and means little to me. A coworker got drunk and screamed at me, while he was off the clock. What I didn't know was that he was living out of his truck, 
and I had taken a shift from him when I was hired. I had no control over that. It was the manager that did that. I didn't yell back, I just waited until he was done and told him to talk to the manager. Later, that manager called me and asked if I was alright, and yes, I was. She wanted to know if I wanted him fired or something. I said no, that I just didn't want to have to deal with him if he'd been drinking. She thought that was fair enough and left it at that. The second incident was a group of teenagers that tried to do a beer run. If you don't know what that is, I shall explain. A beer run is where you and your friends try to grab as much beer as you can and bolt out the door without paying. Now, these guys backed a truck up to the parking spot at the front door and jumped out. There were three of them and they all went for the display near the front doors. I had told the manager that it was stupid to put a giant beer display so close to the door, so I'd been expecting this. I had locked one of the double doors when I came on. This was standard procedure for the graveyard shift. I also had a can of soup behind the counter that had yet to be put back on the shelf. Watching these guys grab the beer and run to the door, I threw the soup at the first guy. This caused him to go sideways a bit and block the door. This caused the other two to run into him. They freaked out and left the beer, running to the truck and taking off. The last incident is a lot more serious. It was an attempted robbery. Now, as I said, I worked the graveyard shift, the most dangerous shift for convenience stores. I need to set the stage. We had a step behind the counter for shorter people, and I always had to move it. I was too tall to use the step and see the customers through the overhead storage that we had. So everyone thought I was shorter than I was. Two, I had cleared most of the counter of extra crap at my boss's request. This left an area where people could put their items and wait next in line. Now... I don't know if any of you have ever seen a person work themselves up to rob a place, but it goes something like this. They wander around the store grabbing items and putting them back, pacing in an aisle, talking to themselves. Generally, they announce what they're going to do. At least, that's what this guy did. My adrenaline was pumping up before he stepped up, but I froze. What I had missed was the gun. The gun that was now in my face, literal inches from my forehead. I don't know how long I froze. My brain was on fire. I took stock of everything. Like, I thought this was my last moment, and I wanted to remember it all. The gun was small, but it looked like it could do the job. He didn't wear a mask or face covering at all. He had long arms to get the gun so close to me. He wore a gray shirt and blue jeans. He was sweating profusely, like he was scared. I don't know what he was saying. I know that he was talking, but I couldn't hear him over my heart and my thoughts. I thought that he was not going to leave me alive. No mask. I'm scared as hell. I was dead if I couldn't do something. So I decided to talk. Are you stupid? I can't give you any cash, I said. What? Why? 
he said as he dropped the gun a bit. There was an opening and I took it. I shifted to the side as I grabbed his arm and pushed the gun back into his face as I hauled him over the counter. I had never acted so fast in my life. It was hands down the most stupid thing that I could have done, but it worked. I could have died that day. Instead, I had the guy laid out on the floor, my foot pressing gently on his throat. Anytime I felt him move, I pressed down. I called the cops and reported the attempted robbery. When the cops got there, I asked them to lock the door. Aren't you supposed to do that? The cop responded as he flipped the latch. The other cop pulled out a pen and a notebook. So, what did he look like? I looked down at my feet and started describing what I saw. The cop looked at me funny, leaned over the counter and laughed. Huh. Hey, Bill, get a load of this. The first cop looked over the counter and saw the guy on the floor. Hey, Roger, long time no see. Apparently, they knew the guy, and when they checked out his gun, they found it to be empty. So, I got lucky. Very lucky. I would never suggest to anyone to do what I did. I was also suspended from work for two weeks, as per company policy. I don't blame them one bit, either. The only reason I did what I did was that I thought I was dead anyways. I used to work at an organization for about eight years that used to do office holiday parties. They would specifically throw a really big party for the Christmas season, as companies do, and they absolutely treated it as a moment for all of us to come together, to let loose, and celebrate another year of hard work. And I will say that we all took advantage of it. Well, for the most part. There was one year, about halfway through my tenure at that company, where the party didn't go as planned. And it was one of those nights where I don't think anyone involved will ever forget it. The company had actually put a lot of money into the party. The CEO actually wrote the check for the party, and had rented out the local Dave & Busters for the night. I don't know how much it cost to do so, but I can only imagine that it was excessive. They paid for the food, everyone had a couple drink tickets, and I wanted to say that it was one of the nicest parties I had ever been to. The night started off comfortably enough, but as time went on, it was pretty clear that some people were drinking more than they were supposed to, and some of the people started to get loud, or really giggly. One of my coworkers, a man that wasn't on my team but I thought that I knew pretty well, was a man named Joseph. Joseph had always been a bit of a wild card. He was an absolute genius based on the conversations I'd had with him, but he was also a bit volatile, unpredictable. He'd been on a corrective action for a month at this point, which was basically a situation of he screwed up, the boss wasn't happy, and he had to not screw up again for 90 days, or else he'd be canned. When I saw him at the party, he seemed to be in a decent mood, 
but that quickly changed when his manager, Leo, showed up. Leo had called him over during the party, and they had a conversation that I couldn't hear, but I could see Joseph's face getting a bit red. Leo then patted him on the shoulder and walked away, leaving Joseph looking like he was about to explode. I made it a point to ask if he was okay, and he just shook his head before walking toward the bar and slamming his drink tickets down while just staring off at nothing in particular. Others noticed his anger too. A few people watched him as he walked away, but no one else said anything to him. We just kind of watched as this situation unfurled. There's something about train wrecks and the human psyche. About an hour had passed since that conversation occurred, and the whole time, I noticed that Joseph was downing drink after drink. This is a recipe for bad things being about to happen. I've seen the results of alcohol when it's mixed with anger, and I had a really bad feeling that something was about to happen. And of course, it did. Leo had been mingling with the other employees, playing some of the games down in the arcade, and then he walked up to the bar to get something to drink. I don't know if it was something else that Leo had said to Joseph when he was ordering, or if it was just that the timing was right, but Joseph stood up, straightened his back, and he slammed Leo in the face with a really hard right fist. It went from a single punch to Joseph grabbing Leo by the throat and slamming his head against the bar. Joseph's face was twisted with aggression, and people screamed, glasses shattered and chairs toppled over as everyone scrambled to get away, to escape this insane scene that was unfolding in front of us. Thankfully, there were police that were in the area, as this Dave and Buster's was in an outdoor mall, and it took five of us to pull Joseph off of Leo before the police were running in to get his hands in cuffs. I will never forget how Joseph laughed as he was being dragged out by the cops, and he shouted, I guess I won't be needing that reference after all, huh, Leo? So, obviously, the party was ruined, and we were trying to keep things calm while the paramedics rushed in to get Leo, rushed him out of the building, and then we were all left in the mess left behind by that crazy situation. Thankfully, Leo was mostly okay. He had some pretty nasty damage to his face, and his head though. A lot of scars, and one of his eyes was actually permanently messed up. We later found out that the initial conversation that Leo and Joseph had was Leo telling Joseph to enjoy the party because he was officially fired after that night. Joseph apparently was going through some things at home as well, which explained why he was there alone, considering I knew that he was married. The alcohol was just the trigger that set him over the edge, and Leo just happened to walk up to the bar right when Joseph was having those dark thoughts. It was an unfortunate situation for Leo, and Joseph had pretty clearly just snapped. That night changed things for a lot of us, and it changed the holiday parties from then on. 
the company set up much smaller parties, more so just the teams having their get-togethers, no more alcohol whatsoever, and parties were no longer allowed to be places where any administrative decisions were made. So, basically, managers could no longer fire people at the parties. Every year after that, though, when it came time to plan for the parties, there were always whispers about Joseph and how crazy that night was. I have a story about something that happened way back when I was only 11. It was about a party that happened at a local skating rink. This was back when everything worthwhile happened at the skating rink, so if nothing else, you should be able to tell around when this happened. The rink was one of those ones that was set up to look like a disco. It had a lot of neon lights and a big disco ball that shot light spots all over the place. It was pretty well occupied every Friday and weekend, and a lot of kids my age would hold their birthday parties there. That's actually where this all happened, at a birthday party, specifically for my friend Henry. Henry was turning 12 and he wanted to have a bunch of us kids out at the skating rink. The party was going awesome. We were playing the arcade games, skating around the big rink, and ate some of their really cheap pizza. So, overall, it was a pretty dang good party for an 11-year-old me. Henry's parents had paid for everyone, but they didn't allow you to rent the whole rink, so there were people there that weren't part of the party. But then, about halfway through the party, a man walked into the rink. He must have been in his 50s, and he didn't have any kids with him, which was a bit odd since this was a skating rink. His hair was dirty and his eyes were bloodshot, and honestly... I don't know if he was homeless or just a fairly unkempt older man, but he looked completely out of place among a bunch of preteens celebrating a birthday party. Henry's parents were busy setting up the cake, so they didn't even notice him at first. He just stood there at the entrance and stared at us, watching all of us skate around and scowling. He didn't speak at first. He didn't really move. He just watched. I think I noticed him first, and I felt uncomfortable with how he just stared at me. It felt like he was trying to intimidate me, like he knew that I knew he was watching, and that he was 100% trying to let me know that I should be scared. I nudged my friend Jimmy, and I pointed him out. He asked who it was, and I shrugged, telling him that I didn't know. When I pointed him out, this guy finally started moving, which actually scared me even more. I was freaked out by this guy staring at me, but him starting to walk towards me was even worse. He held that horrible stare as he approached, and I just stood there frozen, thinking about what was going to happen. Henry's dad finally noticed him and approached him cautiously, I could see that he was trying to stop this guy from getting any closer to us kids, but I obviously couldn't hear him over the music. I could tell that the man was not happy to have been stopped, and after a few moments of the two men arguing, 
he pulled back and headbutted Henry's dad square in the nose, knocking him to the ground. This caused the chaos to start. Everyone had noticed what had happened and was watching this crazy man standing there and breathing heavily. The staff had paused the music and was pretty clearly trying to get the situation under control, but the second the music stopped, this man screamed, I advise you all to leave if you don't want to die. This led to a chaotic situation unraveling as everyone started running for the front door. Us kids were all rushed out of the building, confused and scared. We all got out and to the end of the parking lot. Henry's mom asked us if we were all okay and making sure we were all there. Henry's dad took up the end. His face bloodied. I'm pretty sure this guy broke his nose with that headbutt. Obviously, someone had called the cops, because as we were all getting outside, a number of police cars pulled up and cops all dressed in body armor ran into the building, while the others asked us if we were all okay, and tried to figure out what was going on. Henry's mom tried to explain that this guy just ran in and threatened everyone, and that none of us had ever seen him before. Long story short, the cops got him restrained and arrested him. We found out that he didn't have any weapons or anything, so his threat was just that, a threat. And odds are he wouldn't have been able to actually do anything, but none of us wanted to take that chance. Odds are he was on something, and whatever it was caused his rage to boil over and he opted to take it out on Henry's dad, and of course ruin our fun time. This was supposed to be a fun day for Henry, an innocent celebration to welcome him to his last year as a preteen, but instead, it turned into a nightmarish experience that none of us who were there would ever forget. That man's face was burned into my memory, and honestly... I'm beyond glad that I've never seen him again. As I've mentioned before, I'm a big guy, 6 foot, 5 inches, and 300 pounds. I've worked many physical jobs, so at this time I was in good shape. This allows me the freedom to do stupid stuff that most would be too afraid to do. I don't think about it. Call it my big guy privilege, if you will. I would often take walks late at night, most of the time with friends, but at this time I was living on the streets of Portland out of my car. I did this by choice. My sister lived across the Columbia, and I could stay there whenever I wished. Just most of the time I didn't feel like going back there. I would have to be back in the morning anyway for work. I would also have bouts of insomnia, times when I just couldn't sleep. See, I was used to physical jobs, and at the time I landed a desk job, and I had to burn off a lot of energy. So, I would choose a direction and walk. That night, I went to Old Town slash Chinatown. That's what it was known as at the time. This is not a place for a young white guy to be in, but I was ignorant of that fact. I loved the area, 
the very ethnic style of the buildings, at least their facades. The smells and the people, they were always so nice to me. There was a pizza place that I loved and had been to often, but was closed at this time, so I was just wandering when I heard something behind me. Looking back, I saw a couple of guys walking the streets like me. No problem. I turn and just keep on walking. After some time of aimless wandering, I hear more noise behind me. Now, there are like six guys walking in a group. Thinking nothing of it, I just keep going. Now, I have to say that I was walking down alleys, looking at storefronts. I was just stopping at anything that caught my eye. The group of guys probably thought I was looking for some place to break into. At that time, though, I was getting a bit worried. As Ron White once said, I don't know how many I could take, but I knew how many they were going to use. I started getting scared as they were getting closer and closer. I saw a phone booth, yes, this was that long ago, and I stepped in. To this day, I have no idea why I did that, but it may have saved me. In that phone booth was a card for a Baptist church. It took me back to the crazy guy at Denny's in my previous story, and I decided to go for crazy and act like a preacher. Now, I was raised in a very Christian household, almost cult-like, so I knew the Bible backwards and forwards. I started yelling out verses into the receiver, which was not connected to the phone. I was just holding it up in front of me like a microphone, talking about the wages of sin and how only the Lord can save. I turned and walked through the group of men belting out verse after verse. I probably scared those poor guys, who were most likely just trying to protect their homes. To this day, I do feel kind of bad about it, but I also never walked there again at night. I hope from time to time they think of this story and laugh about it like I do, even though at the time, I was scared stupid. And... Thanks again, Raven, for doing such a good job bringing life to these stories. The first story is a possession story, and the second, a ghost story. As I was coming home from my brother-in-law's house, late at night, maybe around 1am, I had my stepson, a teenager, with me. As usual, we were both in good spirits, making jokes, singing along with the radio, talking about whatever came up, however random or strange someone else might find it. We're about halfway through our 45-ish minute drive, when I look at him and he's looking at me like he's afraid of me. Eyes wide, mouth open, gripping his seat, leaning practically through the passenger door, terrified. I turn the radio down and ask if he's okay. He says, I don't know, are you? Which, why wouldn't I be? I tell him I'm fine and ask what's wrong. He asks me if I know where I am, and while I look through the darkness, I notice I'm about three to five minutes further down the road than I thought, 
it's a dark mountain road and I'm going slowly. I kind of give him this what the hell look, and he says I was singing, and then he watched a, a smoke come in the open window, enter my head, and take over. As in I stopped singing mid-song, didn't answer him when he was talking, and just stared blankly ahead driving, still safely, and then after a few minutes the smoke just left my body, and that's where I looked at him sitting there terrified. I don't know if this has ever happened to me before, or since, because I felt fine. I don't have any recollection of the three to five minutes, no confusion or sense of dread, but I was possessed by something, right? Maybe just an old backwoods ghost that missed driving? Maybe something else. I have no choice but to believe him as A, I'm missing time, B, he would come to me to talk about things openly and honesty, and C, he would never pull it off if it was a prank. He would laugh four seconds in. The second one is on the same winding road, and just the two of us again. Closer to home this time, I start hearing a rhythmic, metallic sound. For a couple of miles, I can't figure out what. In the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night, that could be. I recognize the sound from somewhere. I couldn't place it, though. As the miles pass, the sound keeps getting louder and I finally figure out what I think is happening, but it makes no sense. It's the rhythmic tink-tink-tink of pickaxes on rock. Yeah, like the old chain gangs in movies. This is the same road I took to get there. There were no repairs happening, and it's a dirt road. It had been there for quite some time. It's the only road around, and again, it's the middle of the night. The noise keeps getting louder. On the last stretch of the road before home, we climb this big hill, and at the top, there are three guys with pickaxes. They look like they're on break, but they aren't in color. They're more like a, a sepia tone. They look toward the car as we approach, take a step back to give us extra room, and all three acknowledge us with either a nod or a slight wave. What's that called when an event leaves a spiritual impact on an area? That's what it had to have been. A residual energy, I think. So, I used to live on the streets of Portland. I don't have too many scary stories from then. There is, however, one story that freaked my friend out that I was walking with. My girlfriend and our two friends, who were also a couple, often did things at night. The girls were in college at the time, and it was a Christian college with some strict rules. So, bars and the other usual stuff were a no-go. So we would drive to some places that we hadn't been and just wander. Here is where I have to explain something. I am a big guy. I was six foot, five inches, and around 300 pounds. I had worked as a security guard, furniture mover, and I lumped loads for truckers. I was still pretty fit. 
In high school, I played football and trained in various martial arts. This means that my friends were more than happy to wander into places that we shouldn't be because they had me around. I was always paying attention. I would tell them that we needed to move to the other side of the street to avoid some people or owly mouths that I didn't like. This is all to say that they felt protected when I was around, and would often not think about the dangers around them. Enough backstory. Now, to the story. My group was wandering around near the event center in Portland, the one off of the freeway. I think it's called Rose something. Now, we had many adventures walking around, going up to Mount Tabor Park after dark, and looking at the skyline. Never had we felt in any danger, or even really worried, as we should have. We made a day of street surfing, as we called it. This was getting an all-day, all-zone pass from the MAX line, Portland's mass transit. We would park our car at the 60th and Division Station. It was near a police station and was in the Hawthorne District that was known to be safe. And then we would ride the train and bus all day, going where we pleased. This night, we'd gone back to the car and decided that we didn't want to stop. We got into the car and drove to the event center. There was free parking at night, and it was near one of my friend's homes. Walking from the parking spot to a Denny's so that we could get our munch on, were laughing and joking. I was totally absorbed in talking, so much so that I didn't notice this large man walking towards us. While he was not as tall as me, he was physically bigger. Wild, curly hair, and he was walking like he owned the sidewalk. As he approached, he starts yelling loudly, And the great Lord Satan will take you, points to each one of my friends in turn, and you, and you. He didn't point at me. He didn't even look at me. He just walked on babbling. My friend looked at me and said, Why didn't he point at you? I was still shocked a bit, but laughed it off and said, Well, you see, Satan and I have a deal. That was all I could think to say. I had no idea who this guy was, never seen him before nor since. I know it doesn't seem that scary, but at the time we were young and invincible... And to see the danger that could have been, well, looking back at this, it could have gone much, much worse. Thank you for your time, and thank you, Raven, for doing such good work. Thank you. Listening to the stories that you read which I do religiously and with much appreciation, I often get frustrated by young women who allow creeps to do uncomfortable things to them due to social anxiety. But I am very much guilty of the same thing. When I was in university, my boyfriend and I decided to take a spontaneous day trip to Montreal, a three-ish hour bus ride from where we live. We had a great day, and we caught the 1am bus back home. The bus was packed, and we were stuck sitting at the very back in a row with three seats. 
My boyfriend sat in one corner, I sat in the middle, and an older man sat in the seat next to me. Since we had a long day and it was so late, I started falling asleep. Then, I noticed a hand caressing my hair. I woke up, and it was not my boyfriend. I turned to look at the man next to me, and he pretended to be asleep. Thinking maybe it was a mistake, I fell back asleep, only to become aware of a hand touching the top of my head again. When I woke up, the dude next to me again pretended that he was asleep. At this point, I'm feeling thoroughly creeped out, but I didn't know what to do. My boyfriend was fast asleep, and there were literally no other seats available. So, I tried my hardest to stay seated upright and awake. Anytime I nodded off, his hand would find its way to my head, shoulder, the back of my neck. It was awful, and I was so painfully shy that I had no idea what to do. Finally, we got to our destination, and I got off the bus as quickly as I could. Thankfully, the creep was continuing on to another stop, so we left without him following. I still kick myself for doing nothing in that situation. So, girls, if someone is being a creep, call them out on it. Don't let it be a regret that you carry. Your voice matters. I'm a believer in fate and luck. If it's going to happen to you, nothing is going to stop it. However, one of my former work colleagues has the opposite view that nothing can predict your future, even after what happened to him. He gets up for work at still dark o'clock, leaves home at the same time, sees the same people in roughly the same place every day on his way to work, until one day he was late by two minutes leaving his house. As he walked along, the usual cyclist passed him, and then came the car, and to quote Meatloaf, it was going like a bat out of hell. It swerved past the cyclist, hit the Rhode Island, flipped, crashed back to the pavement, before finishing its trip upside down in the middle of the road. On telling me this story, he pointed out that where the car hit the pavement was where he would have been walking if he'd been on time. So, what delayed you? I asked. After some thought, he said, the bin hadn't been put out for collection, so I went and took it out, which took two minutes. Hey there, friends. I hope that you enjoyed this collection of scary stories on this episode of the As the Raven Dreams podcast. If you did, make sure that you follow the podcast on whatever platform that you're utilizing. And if the platform you are on has a rate the podcast option, please consider doing so. Those ratings push the podcast into the algorithm and we all know how the algorithm controls everything, so... Yeah. I also do have a Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash dreams, you can support the channel further, 
For as little as a dollar a month, you can get early access to all of my content in audio format. The content's a little different, as it's based on what I upload to my YouTube side, but it's the same stories. Just in different collections of stories than how they're presented here. Speaking of stories, if you have one you would like to submit to me, please go to asthereavendreams.com and click the button in the middle of the screen that says Submit Your Story. Now, these stories are mostly sourced by listeners, so let's keep the podcast alive. If you've got one, I'd love to read it. Anyways, friends, I hope you're all having a beautiful day and a lovely week. And I hope I see you again very soon. But until then, remember you're loved, you're valid, you're important. You're the best you that you can be, never forget it. And until next time, much love and sleep well.